The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The Sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Oh, dear son, won't you please Share some little sweet days with me Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. Here we are beginning a new season of Dear Sugars. Mm. I'm very excited. We have so many interesting things ahead. Yeah, we are super, super psyched. And just on a personal note, super psyched to see my partner again. (laughs) My sentiments, exactly. So one of my favorite poems of all time by Rilke is Archaic Torso of Apollo. And it culminates in this line that has come into my mind countless times throughout my life. And it's this, you must change your life. It's such a simple statement, and it reads to me like a command that sort of echoes in my, in my mind at really moments when I finally realize things aren't going the way they should be. You know, people who have read my work, especially Wild, know that I had that moment of truth in my 20s. And I, and I do distinctly remember that feeling. Okay, here I am at the bottom. Hello, bottom. You must change your life. And that is the title of today's show. Yeah. Why don't we dive in and read the first letter? Dear Sugars, I'm a 21-year-old girl from England, and I'm lost. I feel like I've been wandering aimlessly through life since I was six. This was when I had to grow up. My parents divorced when I was two, just old enough to start feeling the implications. Both my parents remarried and started having children. I tried to fit into two new and blossoming households that were never going to fully let me in. I was the reminder of their past and the one thing that prevented my parents from moving on. In my teens, I rebelled against this, convinced that I was unloved, and I spent a good three years going from boyfriend to boyfriend, staying out as late as I could, running away from my homes, and dabbling with drugs. I never had a friend for more than six months without something happening that caused the friendship to come to an end. I had no direction in life, no career path, no drive, no ambition. The only clear thing I knew I wanted was to get away. So here we are, two abortions, two failed college attempts, and a list of dead-end jobs later. I'm in a newly rented flat that I share with a boyfriend I've known for only four months. I kidded myself into thinking it was perfect, when really... He was just my ticket out of my hometown, someone willing to live with me and pay half the rent. I'm stuck in a job I despise, and I go home to a relationship I don't want. I no longer want to get up in the morning. How do I kick this rut that seems to be my life? I have no idea who I am or where I want to be. How and when does life start to make sense? Does it ever? What can I do to put my muddled path behind me and stop making stupid decisions? How do I get on the right path? Signed, Girl in a Rut. Mm. Wow. I mean, I have to say, as I, as I read this letter, I thought a lot about all the voices that can speak to you and that have gone through. One of the wonderful things about literature, the reason we became writers, really, is because 
writers are trying to share the benefit of their experiences. And everybody goes through uh, adolescence and, and early adulthood. And a lot of the literature that I love the best is really um, people commemorating that struggle and trying to write about it and tell the story. Uh, I immediately thought of a whole bunch of different books, um, you know, The Rotters Club by Jonathan Coe, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, Towelhead by Alicia Arion, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin, This Boy's Life by Tobias Wolf Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld, um, The Basketball Diaries by Jim Carroll. All these books came like storming into my mind. Um, but the one that I thought about when I read your letter, Girl in a Rut, was James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And I know that for you, the idea is to get out of Dodge and to reinvent yourself and to just forget about your past. But here's the deal. Your past isn't going anywhere. Yeah. Your past is prologue. And this is the thing that you don't realize. In writing this letter, you have started to do that work that Baldwin is talking about. And and in literature, you're the kind of person who narrates a novel because you're too smart for your circumstances and you know that you got a bad hand in life. Yeah. Girl in a Rut, one of the things I'm so struck by when you describe your life, it's it's everything is about being aimless and muddled and not. And all of the questions you have are about who am I? What do I want? And I think that the journey for you in this in this next stretch of trail ahead is to figure out who you are. Right. And so I encourage you to really give yourself two assignments. One is a healing one. How do I reckon with the past? If you can get yourself, girl in a rut, into therapy, I really recommend that. I, I really think that it would be so helpful for you especially at this time in your life when you really are becoming a woman and you're putting that girlhood behind you. You sign your letter girl in a rut, but you're 21, you're moving into womanhood. Figure out who you are and where you came from. Heal some of those wounds. Um, so, you know, on the other side of that therapy, what I hope you also find some space for in your life is find what you love. Find something that is meaningful to you. Find something that gives you pleasure and makes you feel joy and do it. Right. And, you know, maybe that's volunteering someplace once a week. Maybe that's, um, you know, listening to music and going to clubs and getting involved in that. Whatever, whatever it is, it's really about finding some focus for your life that's positive. Right. We all tell ourselves stories about who we are, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, that's what literature is, I guess, telling certain stories. And for you, girl in a rut, this is the story you're, you're telling yourself. Um, I, I tried to fit into these new and blossoming households, but they were never going to let me in. I was just a reminder. I was an inconvenience. I was cast aside. I was given no value. And that's a story that when you're a kid, you know, you're pretty powerless. You don't have a lot to defend yourself. You don't have a lot of armor. And I would say that continues through your life, but you develop a certain amount of armature. And most of that armature, by the way, is self-knowledge. So you're at least, into my way of thinking, pretty far ahead of the game because you know that the story you're telling yourself is, I was never going to be let in. And so you've recreated that in your relationships, in your education, in your prospects. And the question is, well, what's the new story that you're going to tell about yourself? Because that's really the only path to escape. Because what Cheryl and I are picking up on in your letter is a loss of faith, 
a sense of futility, that it's doomed. No matter what my circumstance, I'm never going to be fully let in. Mm -hmm. Other people get to have the new blossoming life, and I'm the victim of that, and I'm the inconvenience, and so I've been essentially uh, cast into that role permanently. And that's a hard story to undo. I don't want to make it sound like, well, you realize it, so you know, just change it, make a new narrative. It's a struggle to do that. Cheryl's memoir, Wild, was connected with people so deeply because she let people into how difficult it is, how bloody your toes get, how exhausted you are, how much you're exposed to danger when you really try to tell a new story about yourself. Yeah. Girl in a Rut, I'm so struck by uh, the language you use to describe your situation. And it does, the, the piece of it that really resonates with me is, you know, I literally wrote about a hike in Wild, right? right. And you use things like, you've been wandering aimlessly, uh, you're, you know, running away from things. You're on a muddled path. Right. And even that that description of yourself as a girl in a rut, what is a rut except, you know, the groove that is well-worn in a path that it's, that's predetermined. That's right. And one of the biggest things that people misunderstand about that moment in my life when I decided to take a long hike on the Pacific Crest Trail, people will sometimes describe my book as, you know, she escaped her life. And I... What I always knew, even at the time, not just when I wrote the book, is that I was actually stepping into my life. And, and I really believe that it, that it really matters. The, the stories we tell about our lives, as Steve points out, they matter. The language we use to describe who we are and what we're doing is an indicator of what, what, what we feel about who we are and what we're doing. Right. And, you know, even that broken version of me knew, I am not running away from, I am stepping into. Right. Actually, what I want you to do right now, girl in a rut, take out a piece of paper and write a different version of your story, one in which you're not denying any of the bad things that have happened to you or any of the mistakes you've made or the re regrets you have about the, the decisions you've made on your path, and put it into language that really is not about having things done to you being lost, being aimless. Put it in language in which you narrate a story about you taking agency and stepping into your right. life. Because I think that that matters. Uh, what is the other thing you could call yourself if we said we can't call you girl in a rut? Uh, one thing I would call you and what I wish you would be and what I hope you'll take away from listening to this show is girl at the beginning of a glorious journey yeah. because that's who you are to me. Hi, listeners. I'm not sure if all of you are aware that we actually have a column now that is connected to the podcast. It's called The Sweet Spot. I know, it's a little sugary. What can we do? And Steve and I, every week we take another letter. It's not a letter that's featured on the podcast, but it's connected to the theme or the topic each week, and we answer it. So when you write to us, you, you your letter might end up here on the podcast. It might end up in the column. The column goes in the paper every Thursday in the New York Times style section, or you can find it online. It goes up every Tuesday, a couple days before you see it in the paper, and you can find it at nytimes.com slash thesweetspot. We'll be right back.
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. So we're back, and we're welcoming our guest, Mitchell S. Jackson, into the studio. Hi, Mitchell. Hello. So Mitchell is a clinical associate professor of writing at New York University, and he's the author of this beautiful Amazing. novel that I loved, The Residue Years. He's the winner of a Whiting Award, which I'm just going to note that was never given to me or Steve, and also the Ernest J. Gaines Prize for Literary Excellence. His writing has appeared in publications, including the New York Times Book Review, Salon, and Tin House. His new book, Survival Math, will be out in August of 2018. Welcome, Mitchell, to Dear Sugars. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Oh, thank you. We're, well, we're excited to have you on. And, you know, it's, it is a funny sort of show for us to invite you onto. I will, I have to admit, I'm with you. On this. My producer, when we were getting uh, ready to uh-huh. record, she says to me, well, so Cheryl, clearly you're going to have a lot of stories to tell. And I was like, uh-huh. well, what kind of person do you think I am? <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, we apologize for inviting you onto uh, the uh, the show that is like, Okay, you know, you messed up your life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, what do you do now? <laughs> Screw up. But of yeah. course, uh, and and Alex, our producer, pointed out to me that we would only have the show if I had found a way to unmess up my life. True, indeed. Which is why also we have you on the show. You've messed up your life, and then you have found your way back from that. Yes. Tell us your story. Um. Well, I think the the mess up is like probably the definitive thing, but I think it started f- further back when I was um. Around 10 years old, my mother um, was like really an early adopter to crack cocaine because it had just came out in the the mid- beta version of yeah the yeah. beta version yeah so she in what time, like the eighties eighties yeah uh-huh. so by the time I was 10 years old like she was using mm. um, and by the time I was probably 12 she was a full addict and uh, she was a single mom um, and so I dealt with that and part of the way that I dealt with it was. Uh, to sell my own drugs about the time I was about 14. Um, and I did it off and on in high school, but I really like uh, kind of s- committed to it a little bit when I was, uh, after I graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. I did that um, for, what, three, four years. And then I was in college, but I also was selling drugs and then ended up getting caught. So when people see or hear about my story, they think like, oh, this guy was selling drugs and got caught. But actually, you would have to go much further back to kind of figure out the genesis of that. Like, I probably would have never touched it had my mother not been addicted in the 80s. Uh, not just mom, though. I think uh, as a as a youth in the late late 80s, early um, 90s, like, it was part of the culture. Yeah. It was like something, you know, they have this thing called cocaine rap that was, like, really invented in the early 90s where they, like, glorified it. It, like, came out of Scarface. And so, you know, I also had a whole collective of young men my age 
who were doing the very same things. I remember we used to go play basketball in, in uh, Peninsula Park. In Portland, Oregon. In Portland, Oregon, Our, that's right. Yeah, where I live yeah, and you hometown, grew up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there was a guy who would be playing basketball whenever he had, like, a drug sale. He would, like, run off the court and go hit the drug sale and then come back in the game. Yeah. So and this, we were all, like, 14, 15 years old, and it didn't seem— at a certain point, it wasn't abnormal anymore. It was just, like, you know, what we did. So, Mitchell, there you are. You're, you're selling drugs. It's going well from a business perspective. Yeah. Were you aware of not just the destruction that the drugs might do in the community, but were you aware that for you personally, you were on a self-destructive path, or did it feel like things are going swimmingly? Absolutely. I was aware of it, hyper aware of it. Um, well, you, when you start, you're like, call it hand-to-hand, a curb server, right? So you're like, out there selling drugs to addicts. And you see an addict come up, if they've been an addict, like they look like an addict. And that's a really, it takes a lot of um, shutting down of yep. your kind of uh, moral compass mm-hmm. to keep doing that. So once, when I was like probably 15 years old, I went over to my homeboy's house and he was selling dope. He, it was so bad for him. His house was a dope house. And so I went in there and his mom was on drugs at the time, and she was in the room, and he was selling his mom dope. And I was like, okay, now that's where I draw the line. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. Then fast forward, I don't know, six, seven years, and one of the guys that I used to um, sell drugs to, like a really I don't know, was a good guy for my purposes, um, called me one night, and he was like being really strange. And then he like just nodded at a room like over there. When I came in the house and my mom was in there. Oh, boy. And she was like, give me some dope. And I was like, what? Mm. And I started, like, pushing her around. Like, I can't believe you did this. And I was like, hell, like, there's no way that I'm going to do this. There was no way for me to escape what I was doing. I knew that it was wrong. Right. And you were, at the time, a college student? Yes, were you a good college student? I mean, yeah. what, what else? So you were a drug dealer, but also— I was on an also- academic scholarship at Portland State. Like, right. I think I might have had, like, a 3.6 GPA at the time. Like, I was a good student. So you were living, I, I guess, what many of us would think was a double life, mostly because we <laughs> yeah. don't assume drug dealers are also right. on academic scholarships. We're wrong about that. I'll yeah, just true, say. yeah. But um, you had the positive— path mm-hmm. and the negative path and yeah. you were on both yeah I mean I think that was just like the kind of dichotomy of my life I always you know looked at school as a place of like solace that like it was a constant for me no matter what was happening even when I was young and I was kind of you know feeling like I was being pushed around by my mother's addiction I could go to school and for those you know six eight hours like I was a good kid. I was in school. People were saying, like, you're going to do something special with your life. And it wasn't all bad. Like, my grandmother had money. Like, my father was an upstanding citizen. So I don't want to paint it like this poor guy who only had this option. I That was an option, and I did indulge in it. Um, But it was really a constant. Like, there was school always. And then there was, from the time I was in my middle teens, there was this other life. Mm -hmm. Mm. So how did you get arrested. I mean, tell us that story. Uh, I wish it was like, you know, one of those kind of Scarface stories. And that just didn't happen to me. I made some actually bad decisions in terms of being a successful drug dealer. First of all, I never cook drugs at home. But this day, I'm like, let me violate this. I'll cook Mm -hmm. them. And I used to keep my drugs at another woman's house. Then I'm like, okay, uh, 
I'm not going to take them to her house first. I'm going to go play basketball because all my friends are at Peninsula Park playing basketball in the rec center. So let me stop there. No, I've been doing this so long that it's like I forget sometimes the rules. Right. So I go in there, I play. And after I leave, I'm like, okay, I should definitely go back and take these this pack to her house. I'm like, ah, but I want to go see my girlfriend. She just lives down the street. Mm -hmm. So I go pick her up. And as soon as we leave her house, like three blocks later, she, the police are behind me. And I'm like, ah, no problem. I got license, insurance. Like, what's going to happen? I had been stopped so many times with drugs. And sure enough, they pulled me over. And it was dark that night. And for some reason, they flashed the light in my car. And I had a pistol in the car that was, like, under the dash. And they saw that. And then they, you know, they drew down on us and pulled us out the car. And they already had the gun. And so they just kept searching and searching and searching. I remember them finding the drugs and like holding them up in the sky. And I was like, oh man, mm. I'm going to prison. Mm. Like I, it was no doubt in my mind. I knew how much time I was looking at and everything. And uh, while I was there, I knew I didn't want to be there. I felt like I didn't belong. I remember there was a guy I knew on the streets uh, and I was playing dominoes. That was like my, what I, recreation, dominoes and basketball. And I was playing dominoes with someone and he walked, I was standing in a dorm and he walked in the dorm and he like, his eyes got big. And he was like, what? Like, what are you doing here? And it made me feel like really small, but I was like the same thing you are time. Yeah. Come on and sit down. Like I didn't want to put myself above them, but I also didn't feel like I was of them. Um, and that really carried me through my sentence. Um, and then Luckily, I Portland State held my scholarship for me. So July 8th, 1998, I paroled. August 29th of 1998, I was back in school. Right. And if I didn't have that, I probably would have made different decisions. So how do you resist going back to the old life? Um, not wanting to be embarrassed again. Um, That's really big in a small community. Like, you know, some people, there's some kids that are like, they're troubled, you know, they have a history of problems, they get suspended from school. Right. You know, and you... You, you could see it coming. You can kind of see it coming. Right. No one saw it coming. And so I had to answer to all of those people, if not um, explicitly, implicitly, right. when I saw them in the community. And I wanted to be able to walk around with my head up, not right. like you were the guy who disappointed us and you could have been the guy who made us proud. Right. I think it's really powerful that moment when you're playing dominoes and and he says what are what are you doing here? What are you here? doing here? Yeah. And what he's saying is we expected me to end up here. Right. But you exactly. we believed in you and yes. you betrayed us. Yep. And in some ways he was like a mirror. He held up the mirror yeah. and you didn't like what you saw. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking about this line from the residue years that's just amazing. Actually, just, can Mitchell, can you, can we ask Mitchell to read that line? Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you know the line. You yeah. wrote it, yeah. So um, that is a moment where the um, narrator's girlfriend, Champ, is just trying to convince him to just basically live a regular life, to kind of just accept the life that's there for him. And he says, I refuse to be one of those fools, anonymous, everywhere, but inside my head. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that's really a life philosophy, right? Like I, I think I think I believed in the basketball dream for a small part of my life because it was it seemed like the only dream available to me. Right. Uh and when I had to give it up, I had to kind of figure out what what was I gonna do 
after that. And I just knew that I didn't want to be anonymous. Like people kept telling me like, we think you can do something. They never told me what it was they thought I could do. They just used to say like, you're a smart boy. Like you're personable. Like you stick with it. You can do something. Right. And I didn't have a passion. So I didn't know what that something was. But I just knew that like I didn't want to be the guy who lived and died working for, um, you know, nothing wrong with working for UPS if that's what you want. But I don't think there are children who are like, when you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? They say, I want to be the UPS man for 45 years. Like, right. yeah, that's a honest living. And shout out to UPS. I work for them too. But um, I wanted to be able to speak to my culture. I thought it was something that I could do if given the opportunity and the time to study and kind of figure out what it was. Right. Yeah. I wanted to have a voice. And and certainly you didn't want to be a drug dealer. You yeah. didn't want to spend your life in prison. Yeah. And so something had to change. I want to hear more of your story, Mitchell, especially now the part where you you are where you do change your life. I mean, mm. obviously you're sitting here before us, mm-hmm. uh, a, a novelist, and and also an accomplished man, you know? And right. so we want to know more about that journey. But let's first listen to the letter okay. that we have from a 17-year-old kid. Dear Sugars, I'm a teenage boy on the cusp of adulthood, age 17. I have a lot of big dreams and goals. My problem is that I can't seem to stay out of trouble. I always make the wrong decision. It's almost like I can't go one day without screwing up. I struggle with substance abuse, mostly marijuana, and my mother has no tolerance for it. Recently, I got in some trouble over getting high with my friend, and my mother found out and threatened to kick me out of the house. This is a serious threat. I've been to residential treatment twice already, and she believes the only option she has left is to kick me out. What I really want is to graduate high school and save up money to move out of the small city that I live in so that I can get away from everything I've known. I want to turn 18 and get a new start. What I'm looking for is advice on how to stay out of trouble until then. How do I avoid substance abuse and friends that will tempt me? How do I get on the right path to set me up for an amazing future? Signed, Struggling. Hmm. So that's an easy one. So you should be able to just just knock that one out if you want. Yeah, man, make it happen. There you go. Just do it. How about even better? Yeah. Well, first, I want to just say to struggling, um, you know, I I don't diminish at all your struggle by just offering some consolation to you by saying you're 17 and you are not alone. You know, you are trying to figure out who you're going to be in the world, who you are outside of your parents and the rules they've set or not set, and who are you going to be? Um, you know, I think, um, one of the things that was helpful to me that I actually didn't realize until I probably was in my twenties or thirties was along the way when I was making those bad decisions and I didn't know who I wanted to be, I was making very, uh, smarter decisions and and quicker decisions about who I didn't want to be. So I would see someone and I would say, no, nah, that's not for me. And I remember one time I went to go get some drugs from the guy who used to shoot basketball with us and run and come back. He was this we're older now, so he's got a bins and all that. And there's another guy um who also was like ahead of me, right? These are guys that I, I didn't really look up to him, but they were like more advanced than mm-hmm. me. And uh I went to go see him one time and I got in the house and they had like Uzis and 
MAC-10s and silencers and infrareds on a table. And I was like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? They're like, oh, man, don't worry about that. I'm like, nah, bro, like, mm-hmm. like I sell drugs, but I'm not with having an arsenal Right. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm not I don't want to use this. This is not the, the part of the, the game that I signed up for. And so I left and I knew from then on, like I didn't do business with them anymore because they were headed down a path that I just I couldn't get on. Mm-hmm. I still didn't know, like, I want to be a writer. That came much later. But I was like, OK, not this, not that. Right. And so I think even at 17, like you realize the examples that you just really don't want. Right. To have. Well, and I think, too, there's something about deciding I don't want to be that and maybe struggling. Decide on one thing. I don't want to be the kid whose mom kicks him out because he yeah. used drugs. Yeah. You don't change everything in one day. Yeah, no. You, you change one thing, and then that actually allows you to find the strength to change the next thing. And, mm-hmm. and drugs is a big one. Drugs and alcohol. If you're, if you're abusing alcohol or you're using drugs really at all, um, just, you know, if you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to omit that, what will be amazing is, is suddenly, like, the other bad choices you're making will be, A, more clear to you. Yeah. And also, B, easier to change because you have, you're in a better state of mind. Right. And so, be the person struggling who doesn't get kicked out of your house uh, for using drugs. Just do that one thing. And yeah. that sounds simplistic. I know it's complicated to stop. Um, but, but, you know, I really recommend how you might think through uh, how m- you might best do that. The other thing struggling, and I'm really glad that we're talking with Mitchell and that you're hearing his story, mm-hmm. because, you know, uh, the fact is he's telling a story about a mom who wasn't just negligent, but in some ways contributed yeah. to some of those bad decisions. Your mom has no tolerance for your drug use. Right. And I know you see her as sort of the enemy or the antagonist, but actually drugs and bad friends are the enemies right. of that amazing future that you want to have. Yeah. And your mom is an ally. Maybe what struggling needs to realize is that the mom setting the rule is is an act of love. Right. Right. And if she just let him keep riding out, like, that's a different thing. That's that's an act of apathy or something else, right? Right. Right. She's not as his enemy, as Steve said. She's his ally. Yeah. And, you know, this seems like a really kind of antiquated advice um, struggling, you know, especially for a 17-year-old who who wants to do the opposite. But listen to your mother. Uh, think about what your mother is telling you and why. And, and maybe on a couple of fronts, do what she says, because she has your best interest at, at heart, really, in a way that maybe you're not able to, to do right now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's incredibly tough to do. Yeah. But the through line from both these letters, so you have another letter from a young woman trying to get out of a rut and yeah, it feels the that. same thing. They both are talking about, and I want you to speak to it if you would, Mitchell, they have this desire to get away. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. escape. I want to get away from everything I've known. I mm-hmm. want to get out of town. I want to get out of my small town. Yeah. And you know, my sense of that is, well... You never really get away. Yeah. You, you get maybe you get inside and you understand your life a little bit and start yeah. to author it, but you never fully get out. What's been your? Ex- I was thinking about that too. Yeah. Um, I was thinking like, um, the difference between perceiving that you're running away from from something, and actually pursuing something that you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Right. So, 
I didn't want my whole prison sentence to be uh, playing dominoes and basketball. I was a very good basketball player, by the way. Just so I want to mention that. <laughs> just, in here. Yeah, on the I just want to add that in on the record. Yeah. Well, you uh, know, you know how good Cheryl was. Well, we basketball. have that yeah, in common. So, yeah, exactly. Actually, yeah. Okay, Sam. All right. Um, <laughs> I, I'm teasing. Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I, I guess, I just had a. I wanted to tell my story. I didn't want to be a writer. I just thought, like, I have this story. I feel like it can speak to some people. I was like, well, what can I do? I have a speech communications degree. Like, what the hell do you do with that? So I was like, I know, I'm going to be a news anchor. So I called Ken Boddy. From, uh, he's a local news anchor in Portland. In Portland. Who used to play basketball with us. I'm like, Ken, uh, I see that you all have an um, a internship. Can I apply for it? Can you put in a word for it? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll put in a word for you. Come on down. It was $6 an hour. I remember that. Wow. Like $6 an hour. Now, this is a guy. I got a Lexus. I got a Rolex. I got jewelry. And I'm making sit. Now, I'm not selling drugs. So I just, I don't have any more money. I'm making $6 an hour. I mean, it's like times when, like, I don't have gas money. Like, my insurance is lapsing. Yeah. Right? right. Like so, a writer, actually. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> okay. Writer's life, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I did that. And then I got a job at the ABC affiliate as a news writer, which is like an AM junior producer. I was making $12. So now I'm like, ooh, bumped oh, you've up. you doubled your yeah, income. Yeah, I'm getting bread mm. now. You know, I got <laughs> gas money. <laughs> so, uh, and then while I'm working there, um, I saw that there was an ad for the, the MA program at Portland State. It was just starting. In writing. In writing. So I was like, you know, it'd be really cool to be in the community and say I have a master's. Not I want to be a writer, just like, Right. Like, this is like I can go to the elders and say, like, you know, I'm getting my master's degree. Right. Um, it's like the Rolex of the literary world. Exactly. That's right. I've got exactly. a master's degree. A currency. <laughs> <laughs> so I applied to the program. I wrote, like, some really bad knockoff fiction. Yes. And I called the the lady. I said, I, had, I missed the deadline. I said, oh, I, I don't have all the pages. She said, well, just give me what you have. And then I called back, like, two weeks later. Like, I have those pages. She was like, you're in. And I wow. was like, Wow. It wasn't good, right? I, I don't know. I'm sure it was like they needed some people in the program. It, it wasn't <laughs> talent. I'm sure of it. But it was but it was drive. Yeah. It was you saying, I want to do this. Yes. And good things came from it. That's true. I right. hope our letter writers hear that piece. Yeah. Because it's about doing something positive, heading in a direction of your dreams. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think there's, like, I mean, I don't know anyone that's successful that's not audacious. Yeah, me either. Because the world doesn't tell you to be successful. Like, there are some people who are set up for success, generational success. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, for the other, you know, 98% of the world, like, you can't be realistic. Right. right? And it was unrealistic for someone who had never, I hadn't even read a novel before I applied to graduate school. Like, I had read two, I read, sorry, I read two novels in prison. And those are the only two novels that I can remember reading in my life. Before I applied to graduate school for fiction writing, do you so remember like, the two novels? Which two novels? Yes, uh, how Stella got her groove back. Oh yeah, yeah, how yeah and, got her uh, and wait and exhale. That's what they had. It was oh, like wow, one yeah. little shelf yeah. there. Um, and once I got in, and the work that I was producing wasn't necessarily strong, but it also wasn't work you could peg as like beneath what else was being passed around. So I right. said well, damn, if I work hard and I, like, right. really figure out what it means to be a writer, like, I might catch up. Yeah. And then and then what happens is people come up to you and say, you changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, this show is you must change your life. Mm-hmm. And when you do 
And when you give whatever you have to give the world, and obviously the three of us do it through writing, mm-hmm. um, and we so we do have that experience where people come to us every every day and say, mm-hmm. "Your book changed my life. You mm-hmm. changed my life." But of course, that happens in all kinds of the work we do, whether it's teaching or or making music or mm-hmm. or raising a child well. Yeah. When yeah. you yourself. Uh, had a more difficult time of it as a kid. You know, those are things, those are the, the the forces we can harness when we're making the good choices. Yeah. I actually, Cheryl, you're going to be amazed to hear this, but uh, struggling, mm-hmm. I actually want you to take out a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. All right. I write, love paper. Right now, not make a list. That's what Cheryl that's would ask you to thing. do. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's her favorite thing. That's her jam. But I actually want you to uh, take the line from your letter, I have a lot of big dreams and goals, yeah. and write us a second letter. Yeah. And don't mention anything about, I, I can't stay out of trouble, because that's yeah. the other story you're telling yourself. And that story is also true. But that's the only story we're hearing about. And there's this other story, which is yeah. about those dreams and goals. And when you're done with that, realize that you're not going to get to those if you wind up in a residential treatment facility over yeah. and over again. Right. Yeah. All right, Mitchell. Wow. It's been wonderful talking to you. Such You're amazing. Time. And we're I'm so glad that you changed your life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm me so glad too. you're here. I'm sure my mama is too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, yeah. and and speaking of your mama, uh-huh. she changed her life as well. Yeah, yeah. She's been clean for years now. She's working. You know, she gives me good advice. Um, she's like one of my go-to advice givers. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm great. so appreciative of that. Yeah. Well, I'm so that I love I love hearing that. Well, thank you, Mitchell. Thank you. What a pleasure to talk with you and to read your work. Thank you. Hi, listeners. We're trying something new this season. We're opening up a hotline so you can leave us voicemails with your questions. Later in the season, we might use your questions in your own voice on the show, Don't worry, we'll keep you anonymous, but do be aware that anyone who can recognize your voice probably will. To leave a message, call our hotline at 929-399-8477. That's 929-399-8477. We hope to hear from you. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. Our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded this show at Argo Studios in New York City with Paul Ruest. Our mix engineer is Josh Rogeson. Our theme song is by Liz Weiss. And other music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's Dear Sugars, plural, at nytimes.com. And if you want to read the column every week, we answer an additional letter on the topic that we've discussed on the podcast. You can find that at nytimes.com slash the sweet spot. That's on Tuesdays and on Thursdays in the style section. <laughs>